I'm assuming the answer to this question will be obvious for our high schoolers who just got back from New Orleans, but can you remember your last mountaintop experience and how you felt? How about the day after the mountaintop? You know, the vacation is over, and it's back to the daily grind. The ex expected bundle of joy has arrived, and now it's time for dirty diapers and sleepless nights. You know, sometimes a mountaintop experience actually makes life in the valley harder because the lows seem lower after you've been to the top. And sometimes it really is. Such was the case for Jesus when he came down from the Mount of Transfiguration. After the glorious confirmation of his personhood and his ministry, Jesus came back to failure, frustration, and foreboding. Let's see what he came back to and see how he handled it. We're studying in Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, ready for verses 37 through 40. And it came about on the next day that when they had come down from the mountain, a great multitude met him. And behold, a man from the multitude shouted out, saying, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only boy. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams, and it throws him into a convulsion with foaming at the mouth, and as it mauls him, it, it scarcely leaves him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out. And they could not. You know, coming down the mountain was for Jesus almost like descending again from heaven to earth. On the mountain, he had resumed his glorious nature and was having sweet fellowship with Moses. Elijah. But he couldn't stay there, even if Peter did suggest it. He had more to do on earth, and so he came down. When he descended, he was met by a great multitude, but it wasn't a welcoming party. Mark tells us a large crowd had gathered around the disciples who, who hadn't accompanied him on the mountain, and some scribes who were arguing. I imagine Jesus felt like we might, coming home from an exhilarating day only to find the kids arguing and mom climbing the walls. Anyway, when the crowd spotted him, they mobbed him. And when he asked them what was going on, a man shouted out that he wanted Jesus to look at his son. He went on to explain that his son, his only son, had a very serious problem. Something was causing him to fall into fires and into pools of water. According to Matthew, he said his son was a lunatic, perhaps thinking that the moon affected his son's behavior. But he also realized that his son's problems might be spiritual in nature. Mark tells us they said his son was possessed by a spirit that made him mute. He also noted that whenever it seized him, he stiffened, and it dashed him to the ground, foaming at the mouth and grinding his teeth. 
Dr. Luke doesn't mention the lunatic diagnosis either. He only speaks of the condition as one caused by a spirit. A spirit that would seize the young man, throw him into convulsions, and cause him to maul himself, thrashing on the ground. The father then went on to say that he had brought his son to Jesus for healing or deliverance. But since Jesus wasn't there, he had asked his disciples to heal him or to cast out the demon, whichever he needed. But they couldn't cure him or deliver him. They tried, but they couldn't do it. And that was surprising for everyone. Jesus had previously given the disciples the power and authority to both heal and to cast out demons. And they had done so successfully when sent out two by two. Surely nine of them together could perform a simple exorcism. But they failed. For some reason, they couldn't do it. So rather than finding his disciples doing what he had commissioned and equipped them to do, when Jesus returned, he was greeted by confusion, argumentation, and failure. I can't help but wonder if that's what he'll find in the church when he returns to us. You know, we too have been commissioned and equipped to do his work on earth in his absence. But far too often the church is just as crippled by confusion, argumentation, and failure as were the disciples. I pray that people who should have found healing in our midst won't be crying out to him that we failed when he comes again. And I pray that he won't be as frustrated with us as he was with his disciples on this occasion. Let's read on. And Jesus answered and said, Oh, believing, unbelieving, and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. And while he was still approaching, the demon dashed him to the ground and threw him into a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. You know, Jesus was genuinely frustrated with his disciples. When he said, Oh, unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? He was primarily talking to his disciples. They had proven themselves to be faithless and unbelieving by twisting and perverting what he had told them. They had developed a perverted belief about the power and authority he had given to them. They now thought it simply resided within them. And they had forgotten the need to depend on the source. 
They should have been able to handle the situation. They had been trained and equipped and were experienced, but they failed. When Jesus then said to the father, bring your son to me, the demon knew it was in trouble. It dashed the boy to the ground and threw him into convulsions, apparently hoping to make Jesus look bad. But Jesus used it as an opportunity to express concern. And Mark tells us he asked the father how long this had been happening to him. The father responded from childhood and has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. He then added, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. He'd originally come looking for Jesus, hoping that he could heal his son. But now he wasn't sure. After all, his disciples had failed. Jesus challenged his lack of faith in him by saying, If you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Jesus was affirming that he can do all things and that all things are possible if we come to him with faith in him. Now, that's not a guarantee that he will do whatever we ask him to do, only that he can. And that if we come to him in faith, trusting him to do what is best for the long term as well as the immediate situation, he will do it. The father reaffirmed his faith in Jesus and asked him to help him have even more faith. And since there was no reason not to heal this boy, Jesus did so. He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. Mark tells us that after crying out and throwing the boy into terrible convulsions, it came out. And the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them thought he had died. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him. And gave him back to his father. And all were amazed at the greatness of God. Now that should have been a clue to the disciples why Jesus had succeeded and they had not. But they still didn't get it. When they later went into a house, they asked him privately why they hadn't been able to cast out the demon. Matthew records him saying that it was because of the littleness of their faith. But he quickly adds that if they had faith as a mustard seed, the smallest of seeds, they could do anything. So it wasn't because they hadn't conjured up enough faith to do what they'd been called upon to do, it was because their faith had been misplaced. They thought they could do it themselves. They hadn't even bothered to ask God to work through them. They hadn't prayed. And it would take prayer to do what they'd been asked to do. They could not do it by themselves. Only God could do it. 
Now, if you read about this in the 17th chapter of Matthew's gospel, you will note that verse 21 is in brackets or is only mentioned in a footnote. And that's because it's not in the best text. Apparently, a scribe somewhere along the line thought he should add to what Mark records Jesus saying about the necessity of prayer and inserted that this would also require fasting. In doing so, I think he revealed a fundamental misunderstanding of what Jesus was saying here. Jesus was not giving the disciples a formula to follow to be able to exercise the demon and then criticizing them for not doing what he had taught them to do. He was simply exposing the fact that they had forgotten it was God who heals and delivers, not them. Indeed, some believe that if we will do the right things, and fasting is usually one of the things they suggest we should do, that we can accomplish great things for God. The problem is that such religious disciplines can pervert our faith into believing in ourselves and the power we can exercise if we'll just do the right things or follow the right religious formula. The disciples didn't fail because they didn't fast. They failed because they let self get in the way. And they, like Jesus, would have to die if they would be used by God. Let's read on. But while everyone was marveling at all that he was doing... He said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. For the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this statement. And it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this statement. Let these words sink into your ears. For the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Matthew and Mark add, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. When he said he would be delivered into the hands of men, he was talking about death. He was going to die. He wanted that truth to sink into their heads because they weren't hearing it. They didn't want to hear it. It was concealed from them because they were afraid to ask. Of course, they weren't hearing about the resurrection either. It was this talk about death that grieved them. They didn't want him to die any more than they wanted to die. And that was the problem. They just couldn't wrap their heads around the idea that they too would have to die to self before they could really be used by God. They had failed, quite frankly, because they had gotten in the way. Only when they would understand that a death would have to come before success in the kingdom would they be able to do what he had commissioned them to do? Even he 
would have to die before he could rise again and declare the defeat of sin and death. The multitudes wouldn't understand that. That's not what they expected the Messiah to do. In fact, it would be their unfulfilled expectations that would lead them to cry out, crucify him. But Jesus needed his disciples to understand. Let these words sink into your ears. He wanted them to expect him to die. Knowing only then could he come back in victory. And he wanted them to die to self and their dreams of success so they could experience resurrection power in their lives. The same is true for us today. As long as we attempt to do things for him with our own strength, we are bound to fail. We have a supernatural enemy fighting against us. It's going to take supernatural power, resurrection power, for us to succeed. Now, Jesus did not tell the disciples they would have to try harder if they wanted to succeed. He didn't give them a pep talk. He told them to pray. If they wanted to accomplish his will, they would have to rely on God to do it through them. And they would have to continually acknowledge that it was indeed God who had the power to heal and deliver, not them. And just as he would have to bear a cross, so would they. They, too, would have to die, at least spiritually. And the same is true for us. If we would succeed rather than fail and bring him joy rather than frustration, we must take seriously his foreboding message of death and express our willingness to die to self, and to what we want, and to self-reliance. We've got to die before we can live. That's hard. And that goes against the grain. That goes against our nature. That goes against our culture. We've got to learn how to get out of the way before God can work through us. And that's a continual battle. I remember years ago, a girl in camp was talking about, was it Romans 8? Talked about a living sacrifice. Unless we present ourselves a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. We can't accomplish his will. And she said, you know, the problem with a living sacrifice is that it tends to crawl off the altar all the time. I thought that was amazing. And we all do it. We all do it. We think we can handle it. But we 
can't. That's why the disciples failed. The way of the cross leads home. It was true for Jesus and for the disciples. And it's true for us. And it's true for any that we would bring to him for healing and deliverance. May we never get in the way of what he wants to do through us. Let's stand.